turning into Acts chapter 15 today. You can turn there in your Bibles or on your phones or page 923 if you're using the Bibles here at the church. Acts chapter 15. This is the uh, really this this chapter is really the center of the book of Acts. Uh, everything that comes before is sort of confirmed in this text, and it uh, and it defines the mission trips that fill the rest of the book of Acts. It's very central. Um, we'll take a couple weeks on this. We're going to look at just verses 1 through 12 this week. Acts chapter 15, beginning at verse 1. It is sort of a unit, but it's longer, and there's a lot there, so we are going to take it uh, take it piece by piece. So Acts chapter 15. Now, um, just to remind you of the context here, Right before this section, Paul and Barnabas have gone out, their first mission trip. They have traveled through the church, the, these cities in southern Galatia, modern-day southern uh, Turkey, and they um, have just returned from this trip, a very successful trip, and although with lots of persecution, and have uh, blessed the, the, their home church there in Antioch with a description of all that's happened. So that's the context um, before we start in verse 1 of chapter 15, but let's pray first and ask the Lord to bless this reading of his word. Dear Lord, your word tells us that as the rain waters the earth and brings growth, so your word will not return to you empty, but will accomplish your purpose, bringing growth to your people and new life to those who walk in darkness. And so we come now this morning to hear your word, and we come with expectation. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, beginning at verse 1 of Acts 15. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. 
Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. So uh, some of you will know the book Farmer Boy by uh, Laura Ingalls Wilder. It, it tells the story of 10-year-old Almanzo growing up on his parents' farm. One of his big accomplishments is the, the training of these two little calves to pull a bobsled. Uh, to, to do that, he uses a yoke. Now, some of you guys will know what a yoke is. It's, it's, got, uh, it's, it's sort of a piece of wood that it goes over the heads, the necks of the two calves, and it's sort of curved over their necks, and then there's a loop that goes around to hold it in place. And the genius of the yoke is that it allows the two calves to work together to pull something, a plow or a sled or a cart. Now, the danger of the yoke is that if the calves don't work together, or if, you know, Almanzo doesn't guide them very well, or if the, you know, the sled uh, connected to the yoke flips over, uh, they can get strangled by the yoke or, or flipped over on their side themselves. So uh, at one point in the story when Almanzo, he's pulling wood through the snow with his little calves, it leads them off the path into the deep snow and the sled tips and it flips the, the calves over too because they're connected by this yoke. And I thought of this scene when I began studying this passage. Because whenever we add things to the gospel of salvation by grace alone, whenever we begin living as if uh, we, we are saved by grace plus something else that we need to do, we're like those poor little calves, crushed, strangled, yanked off their feet by a heavy load. Friends, the only way of salvation that we are able to bear is the gentle yoke and the careful leadership of Christ. He took the heavy yoke of the law upon himself so that we would not have to. And he offers us the yoke of grace. And so of supreme importance to the devil is distorting the gospel of grace to strangle us again. And of supreme importance to the church is defending that gospel, which is exactly what we see going on here in Acts 15. They're defending this gospel of grace. So we begin by looking at what is threatening the gospel in our text. So my first point, a threat to the gospel, a threat to the gospel. And the context or the background to this threat is, is the time in biblical history that we and these Christians live in. We live in what the Bible calls the last days. It's that period of time between Christ's first coming and 
his second coming. And the Bible is clear that in that period of time, the, the primary difficulty that Christians will face is false teaching. Now, persecution will be a problem too, but see, the thing with persecution is it's hard, it's sad, but it doesn't actually seem to hurt the church. More often, it seems to help the church. False teaching, however, that is a problem. It is the most effective way to destroy the church. And isn't it true that the main thing that our enemy, the devil, is known for is lying? He lies. He twists the truth. He subverts it. He distorts it. So it's no surprise then that as chapter 14 ends, right, with Paul and Barnabas telling their home church about this wonderful mission trip, we turn the page, and what happens? The devil attacks. We read about these men coming and teaching what Paul uh, later calls a different gospel. Paul warns about false teachers uh, multiple times throughout his letters, especially in his two letters to Timothy. He says in 2 Timothy 4.3, Time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching but have itching ears, and they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. We need to keep our eyes open and expect that Satan is actively seeking to distort the gospel in our lives, in our hearts, in our churches. He would love to see a Christian tasting the sweetness of grace to be yanked off their feet and strangled by a false gospel. Now let's define this threat to the gospel in our text here. What is the early church dealing with? What is this threat? Verse 1, some men come and they're teaching, unless you are circumcised, according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And then they ramp it up down in verse 5 at the actual assembly. They say, uh, um, you, need to, you need circumcision and uh, they need to keep the law of Moses as well. And let's be clear, this is not a debate about uh, how people should live. This is a debate about how people are saved. They're saying, you cannot be saved unless you do these things. Um, circumcision was an entrance sign for becoming part of the Jewish people. The Mosaic law here refers to all the judicial and ceremonial laws that Moses had commanded the people to follow. And so another way to put this is that these people are teaching to become a Christian, you must first become a Jew. This is a major question for the early church. They have to resolve this. Is it a Fine, whether Christianity it remains a subtype within Judaism or it transforms Judaism into a holy nation from every tribe, every tongue. Does the gospel say that salvation is a free gift from God or does salvation depend on obeying certain rituals and rules? That's the question. Now, we're told in verse 2, 
Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with the guys teaching this view. So they recognized the significance of this issue. And there's a lot behind these words, uh, no small dissension and debate. Some of the backstory is actually given to us in the book of Galatians. Um, it appears that after this debate in Antioch, some of these false teachers moved on and attacked those new churches that just planted in southern Galatia. You know, Iconium, Lystra, Derbe, the city in Antioch. And so Paul, at some point before this assembly in Jerusalem, maybe even on his way to that assembly, he sends them a letter, which we know as the book of Galatians. He sends them this letter to warn them about what these guys are teaching. Uh, we could, so we get a little bit of a, a picture of what's going on in the book of Galatians. We could almost stop and preach through the book of Galatians right now. We won't do that, but we could. But if you just turn to Galatians 2.11, Paul gives us more details on what happened when these false teachers came to Antioch. He writes, this is Galatians 2.11, when Cephas, which is, this is a nickname for the apostle Peter, okay, so Cephas is Peter. When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, right, these certain men, those are probably these false teachers that we see here in Acts. Uh, before they came, Peter was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back, and he separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. So, I mean, we need to get how big a deal this is, right? Peter is led astray. James may be involved uh, Paul says these guys came from James. Now, they may be representing his view or not. We don't really know. But James is one of the most influential uh, elders in the church in Jerusalem, as we'll see next week. Uh, all the Jews in Antioch go along with Peter and even Barnabas. Steady, encouraging Barnabas is led astray. Now, Paul has the clarity to see how dangerous this all is. This breach that is dawning between the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians, this is not just a cultural thing. You know, you do your stuff, we'll do ours, great, we can still be friends. No, they want to impose this on the Gentiles. This is a question of what, something being added to the gospel. And so Paul goes on in the book of Galatians to uh, publicly rebuke Peter because his sin was public and clarify that a person is not saved by works, but only through faith in Jesus Christ. And I think this background here, I know, I know this is in our text, right? We're jumping into Galatians briefly, but I think this is helpful in a couple ways. First, it just shows us how significant this problem was. Peter, James, Barnabas, these are three of the primary leaders of the, the early church. Uh, they've all been either led astray by these false teachers or they're too afraid of them to say anything. Right? Paul indicates in Galatians that that is the case with Peter. He's afraid of them. And there's a warning here for us about how easy it is to miss 
and the gospel is being distorted. And how good men can be silenced by fear of man. Our leaders need to be careful about these things, and they need your prayerful support and input. But I think there's also, on the other hand, something encouraging for us here, too, uh, because Paul is not deceived, and we're reminded of the importance of having a plurality, a bunch of leaders in our churches. Uh, three good men are deceived here, but the fourth man speaks up. What happens? Peter listens. Uh, Paul's rebuke must have worked because when Peter gets back to Jerusalem for the council, it is his speech that really decides the issue, right? Just notice, if you turn back to our text in Acts, just notice what happens uh, right before he speaks in verse 7 of our text. What's going on? We read that there had been much debate. There's much debate. We're not giving the details, but I think it's safe to say. People are getting up. People are getting down. Maybe there's some yelling and shouting. Maybe somebody gets kicked out. We don't know, but that's what happens when people start to debate. At least it's clear. They have not agreed on this matter yet. Uh, but then Peter stands up and speaks. And what do we see after his speech? In verse 12, the assembly fell silent and listened. There's a major shift here. Uh, what Peter says is decisive. This is the turning point of the assembly. But it's beautiful because we know what lies behind this clarity that the assembly receives. What lies behind it? One Christian rebuking another Christian, and that Christian, by the grace of God, responding with humility to the rebuke. This is what a Christian community needs in order to resolve disagreement. People must be willing to engage, clearly respond humbly, and then move forward in the work of the gospel. Just like every great moment in church history, uh, behind this first council of the church, which is surely the center of the book of Acts, there are these personal interactions of courage, of humility, of truth, and repentance. But now before we move on from these false teachers and the threat they bring to the gospel, we want to make sure that we can understand them. We want to relate to them. Who are these people These uh, who are advocating for this view? They appear to be true believers who are sincere, but their whole world is falling apart. One scholar describes it this way. Think of the stability of the Pharisees' training and Hebraism, his immersion in Mosaic law and tradition, his pride in being part of the chosen people of God, live in his shoes as we relive the steps of his rigorous education and joyous participating in Israel's customs. Feel the loving arms of parents and family as he is circumcised on the eighth day. Catch the awe and wonder he felt sitting at the feet of the elder Pharisees studying the scripture. 
Identify with the pride he felt when he became a son of the law at his bar mitzvah, that become one with him as he grew to full manhood and earned the revered status of a Pharisee, and consider how he must have burst with satisfaction as he put on the dignified robes of a leader of Israel. But here come Paul and Barnabas teaching that you do not need any of those things to become part of the people of God. Can you imagine how transformative Jesus' coming would have been for a Jew? He fulfilled all these things that had been their life. All this ceremony and ritual that allowed them to worship a holy God. But, but what did Jesus do? He ripped open the curtain of the temple, and these people's lives are left naked, bare. This would not have been an easy thing. It is no surprise that some of them were holding on to these things and even claiming that these new believers, they still need to do them too in order to be part of God's people. This may not be as dramatic for us, but similar temptations certainly arise. To really be a Christian, at least one you'll hang out with, people need to be what? Republican, homeschooler, Christian schooler, KJV only, Christian music only at a certain level of spiritual maturity that you can engage, or at least, you know, normal, adjusted uh, people according to your definition of normal. Maybe you don't think this about other people. Maybe that's not you. Maybe you put this on yourself. To really be a Christian, I need to be this kind of parent. Uh, I need to be this kind of evangelist. I need to be serving in these kinds of ways. I need to be able to give a certain amount of time, certain amount of money to the church. Uh, I need to have not messed up in these sorts of ways. I need to not have these types of doubts. What is it that you think you need to become before you're really a Christian? You understand that those things could be a threat to the gospel. You see, there is a threat to the gospel of grace in all of our hearts. Sometimes we take you know, good laws that God gave us to tell us how to live, what we call his moral law. We turn them into an entry requirement for a Christian or a way to kind of add to our salvation. At other times, we might try to resurrect mosaic uh, laws that Jesus fulfilled, like these, these Jews are doing in, in Acts chapter 15. Or, you know, we might, uh, we might just be imposing laws on ourselves or others that are from our traditions, our background. Our, our church culture, or just what we prefer. We need to defend the gospel in our own hearts and as a church. So let's turn to my second point this morning, a defense of the gospel. Now, 
As we look at uh, Peter's speech here, notice what he does to defend the gospel. He's defining a doctrinal truth, right? How are people saved? That's the truth he's addressing. But he doesn't do a lot of theology. What does he do? He reminds them of what God has done. Right? So this is sort of like the difference between me telling you all the reasons why you should drink water uh, or just showing you a guy who hasn't drank water for a week and another guy who has drank water for a week. Right? That second option, that's going to convince you to drink water a lot more than me giving you all these facts about how good water is for you. In the same way, uh, Peter says, just look at what God has done with these Gentile believers. Just see. They've not been circumcised. They're not keeping the ceremonial laws of Moses. You know, we may be drinking the, Jew the Jewish uh, Kool-Aid, and they may be drinking water, but we're both healthy believers. So, verse 9, he says, God has made no distinction between us and them. He cleansed their hearts by faith, just like he cleansed ours. Backing up to verse 8, he gave them the Holy Spirit, just like he gave the Holy Spirit to us. God has borne witness to them, Peter says. God is showing us they are Christians. And God knows the heart, he says, right? We don't know the heart. So if he's bearing witness to them, who are we to say that they need to do more things before they're actually Christians? And then backing up to verse 7, notice that from the very beginning of his speech, Peter says, look, this is all God's design. This is his plan. This is his initiative. Uh, middle of verse 7. God made the choice for me to share the gospel with these Gentiles. Peter is referring back to his uh, interactions with Cornelius in Acts chapter 10. We saw this a couple of weeks ago. If you remember back there, Peter didn't decide of his own initiative. Hey, I'm going to go preach to these Gentiles. No, God had to send him a special vision. He got... Uh, he got Spoken to directly through the Spirit. There was an angel sent to Cornelius before he went down that road. And so Peter starts off by reminding them, look, guys, this was all God's thing. God knows the heart. God bore witness to them. God gave them the Holy Spirit. God made no distinction between them and us. God cleansed their hearts by faith. Peter pushing them up against a wall, right? I mean, if I tell you to drink, you might be like, okay, that's Ash, that's your opinion, great. But if I can show you that it is God's will for you to drink water, that's a different matter. Totally different stakes. And so having made his point, Peter pins them to the wall in verse 10. Now, therefore, having seen God's work among the Gentiles, why are you putting God to the test? This is the question that's going to silence the room. Why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? Remember the yoke. 
in my introduction. This is the yoke that strangles believers and yanks them off the path of life. This is the yoke of demanding that salvation comes through keeping the law, which Peter, who's just been publicly exposed as a hypocrite by uh, Paul back in Antioch, has no problem telling the council, nobody can bear that yoke. Let's not pretend. So why is it that we put God to the test when we add things to salvation by grace alone? This phrase, put God to the test, is one of those phrases that every Jew would understand. It, it refers back to the way that the people of Israel treated God when they were wandering through the wilderness after the exodus. We can see this especially in Psalm 78. Psalm 78, we won't look at it, but it reflects back on the history of the people of Israel. And you see, God, he made it so, so clear in that exodus from Egypt that he had the power to save his people. He made it clear, right? What did he do? Ten plagues? We could walk through those, but we don't need to. Showed God's power. Uh, opening a way through the Red Sea for his people to walk through, closing the way on their enemies. They didn't do anything to contribute to their exodus from Egypt. They kind of just walked and watched. And yet they get to the wilderness and they test God. You brought us here to die. This Moses guy you gave us is a joke. We want to go back to Egypt. They test God. To test God is to question his power to save. This is what we do when we add to the gospel. We test the Lord when we say, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ is not enough to save us. Every form of legalism is a denial of God's power. We must defend the purity of the gospel like Peter does here because not only do we keep people from being strangled by the yoke of the law, we defend the supremacy, the power of God to save. When we add to the gospel, we show that we have not yet grasped the fullness of Christ's saving work. He's too small to us. Peter's right to ask this very convicting question that silences the assembly in Jerusalem. Are you testing the Lord? Are you questioning his power to save? And we also need to ask ourselves this question. Why are you putting God to the test by seeking to add your works, your man-made traditions, to the gospel. Now, Peter does not end with that question, right? He offers the alternate position, the solution for our hypocrisy there in verse 11. But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. There is no distinction because there is only one thing that can pardon your sins and cover you with holiness. 
the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. He died on the cross to forgive your sins, and he lived a perfect life to offer you his holiness. That's what we call justification, which is the theological doctrine being defended here by Peter, right? What is justification? Justification is an act of God's free grace in which he pardons all our sins. That's the first thing. He accepts us, that's the second thing, as righteous in his sight. How? Only through the righteousness of Christ, which is imputed, is placed, it's sealed on us, and we receive it. How? Faith. By faith alone. Right? That is the, that's justification. But it, see, it's not just a theological doctrine. You know what it is? It's the difference between testing the Lord and resting in the Lord. It's the difference between being strangled by the law and being freed to love the law. Defending this doctrine is a defense of your joy. It's a defense of the glory of God. And it is a defense of your Savior, Jesus Christ, as the only one who can save. And so as we turn to participate in the Lord's Supper this morning, let me urge you not to bring anything to this table except your need. Jesus gave his people this meal as a gift to remind them they don't need anything to be saved except him. That's why he called the, the bread his body the wine, his blood, to make it clear that those who would claim eternal life may do it only by feeding upon him. You cannot provide the meal. You can only, by faith, even faith as small as a mustard seed, you can only accept the meal Jesus gives you. That's grace we are saved by grace alone. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your grace. You offer us salvation through Christ. We pray that we would be defenders of this gospel, even as Peter was, Paul was, Pray that we would interact with one another in humility and love and boldness as we defend this truth in our hearts, in our church. Remind each other, Lord, not to add anything to the gospel, Lord, but to rely alone upon Christ for our entrance into the kingdom. Pray this in Jesus' name.